Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I'm Danny Lurie, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. I've wanted to do more in the vein of talking to people about their life in the business and how everything goes, and somebody who I'd wanted to do this with from basically the very beginning was Sam Amick. He is NBA insider for USA Today, has a great long story of the various paths that he's had in the industry, the jobs that he's had going back to college, and he was gracious enough to give me over an hour, and so we talked a lot about the business and how he got started and how it worked through lessons for aspiring people, and I deliberately didn't include timestamps in this. I could have done it, but this one I deliberately didn't because I think the whole story is worth telling, and I don't want to give people an incentive to skip through it and find other things. This episode is brought to you by Blue Apron, the fantastic food delivery service. You can go to blueapron.com slash realgm and get three meals for free, including free shipping on your first order. And also Audible. You can go to audible.com slash try now and you can get a month free trial with a free audiobook. So hopefully you check both those out. Conversation runs about an, an hour 20. I think you'll really enjoy it. I love talking with Sam. Thanks so much for coming on. No problem. Thanks for having me, Danny. You and I have known each other for a long time now. I think it's somewhere around seven or eight years, and we've we've talked on various things before, but the story that I wanted to tell on this, just because I personally find it really interesting, is your path to this point, because in my opinion, you kind of tackle a couple of different things, because you started out in newspapers and then really, really made the jump to the internet in a way that, you know, you didn't kind of go like the people who kind of did the internet well with a newspaper, you went all the way and did fan house and everything else. So I'm not exactly sure where you want to start, but I just thought it would be good to take people down that path. No, I appreciate it. And I'll be honest, it's like anything else in life. It's one of those things where to me, it's just the story and it's just my life. And so it's, it is what it is. But then when you shed light on it, like you are, you do kind of take a step back and kind of chuckle at the uniqueness of it. I mean, the thing that I think is fun and, and that I do enjoy about the, the way that my career has gone is that the fact I kind of ended up spanning, you know, the transition in two eras and the fact that I had my toes in the old school when it comes to getting out of college at a time when, and I went to Sacramento State, a time when at the Sacramento Bee, if you walked into the newsroom, they still had those old plastic pipes that would be on the walls of the newsroom. And the purpose of those was to literally type out the copy, roll it up, and it was a vacuum tube that would shoot it down to the copy room in the uh, lower bowels of the newsroom. I mean, you're talking really old school stuff. And we weren't still using those when I got there. But the fact that that infrastructure was still in place gives you a little taste of kind of when I started trying to do this thing. And then to go, I was at the Sacramento Bee, you know, from there and and we can go through the story, but you know, to now be in the middle of this uh, this social media age and the 24-hour news cycle and, and the way things are right now, I mean, it's been two different generations. It has been. And when you were at, when you were at Sac State, did you want to be a sports journalist? Did you study for that? I did. I was journalism. Funny, quick backstory on that. So I go to Sac State, and I grew up in Pleasanton. I don't know if you knew that part, but just you know, Bay Area guy grew up a Warriors fan and then gave up on the Warriors because they were terrible and became a Bulls fan. And, you know, Michael Jordan was taking over the world. And so with Sac State, I just the classic case of trying to get away from home, but not be that far. So I go to Sac State and I went to freshman orientation with my mom. And mom is telling me, now we're going over here, you know, to meet these people, do this, do that, go to the dorms. And you're just kind of your head spinning because it's college and trying to figure out what's going on. 
And I remember we walked into the University Union and bottom line, like I got the impression that that day I had to pick a major. Like I was up against it. You better decide. You got to pick a major. And so it almost, you talk about life and it's weird twists and turns and just the way things turn out. It's almost as simple as to say that I picked journalism on a whim on the fly, largely because I had much more comfort with writing and with literature and that side of things than I did with math. I had always found my way through math, found my way through science, things of that nature, but enjoyed writing. So I kind of just grabbed journalism in that way and then go down that road. What I didn't know at the time is you could be undecided. I could have taken two years to figure out what I wanted to do. But obviously, I'm glad I did what I did. So I, I did journalism, essentially stuck to the studies mostly for the first two years. I had a quick little flirtation with the college newspaper where I was a news writer for like two weeks. The State Hornet was the paper at our college. And to paint the picture for you, you know, I go to their newsroom. And they were literally setting up shop in a like a motorhome on the outskirts of campus. They didn't even have their own office. And I walk into this, and I'm talking like motorhome where the uh, they got the the metal stairs and the steps that you go up to get in, and and there's these people jam packed into this little this little unit trying to put out a college newspaper. So that wasn't real impressive, you know. It didn't really get me excited. And then the news thing, the news thing just didn't fit for me. You know, I I went to the first event I covered was a homeless convention in Sacramento. It was meaningful stuff. There was real substance to it. But, you know, admittedly, it just didn't get me enthused. I was in the back of this church in downtown Sacramento uh, covering this event, and I just had to sit there for about three hours watching people debate homelessness. And it was a community event. And then I wrote my story. And so bottom line, it didn't get me jacked up. And, and I, I didn't end up going on that road yet. It wasn't until my junior year that I start dipping my toes into the, the sports thing and, uh, and kind of went from there. Writing about those substantive issues is a very, very different thing. I was actually thinking about that because our mutual friend Tim Bontemps covered the Oakland Fire, horrible circumstance. And right. that's a jump that I'm not sure I would be capable of making. I, I, I think about that stuff a lot, but being able to write about it and report news in that way, it's so fundamentally different from what we do. It is, although it, it's probably revealing the different place in life that I was then. I have a lot of days now where I wish I could. Like I, I embrace that stuff a whole lot more now than I did then. I like what we do, but there are definitely times when you're just looking at, you know, I'm sitting in front of my computer right now. So you're looking at the screen and, and of course you care about what you're writing and you're, you're trying to do a good job with it. But there are days when you look at the screen and it's just kind of, you know, in terms of substance and what truly matters, a lot of what we do is it's entertainment, right? So honestly, a day like today and yesterday when the, the whole basketball world and a lot of the world is mourning the loss of Craig Sager and, and you try to share a few thoughts on things like that. I try to keep my eyes open in those moments now more than ever. Uh, but I do agree with you in terms of covering it. You know, I applaud Tim for that transition he made. He dived in in a big way on that Oakland story. And I know it hit him pretty hard. I heard his podcast talking about it and how he was trying to put everything in perspective and the idea that, that we all get so wrapped up in whether this guy's playing well, that guy's not playing well, and trash talk back and forth, whether it's media, fans, whatever. And, and so Tim, you know, his takeaway from that experience was let's not lose sight of this stuff doesn't matter. It's supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be entertainment. But uh, there are much more important things than NBA hoops. There certainly are. And that's a balance that I've always had trouble with because my background and something I actually did a lot concurrently with 
this is political stuff, which is, you know, sometimes that can be theater too, but it was always something that I like the frivolity of sports is something that was always a part of my mind. And I actually kind of appreciated it for the sense that I never had any delusions about it being this definitive thing. Obviously people have it as a, as a way that they get meaning and happiness from their lives. And that's wonderful. And everything that does that has importance, but there is something different about it. And I guess for me that made it a little bit more comfortable as a subject area to go into. And also for me to really kind of lay into it at moments, you know, so like if I think something is there that I can, I can express my frustration and all that. And it's, but it's in a way that is, you know, it's, it's more fun than anything else. And we can always fall back on that if we have to. No, I agree. I agree. I mean, there's times when, to your point, if you're coming strong with a certain perspective on the latest NBA topic topic of the day, uh, there's a freedom that comes with really just saying what you think when it's in the context of the league and it's still just a sports story. Even if you're writing about a particular individual or a team and you're thinking in the back of your head, oh, this isn't going to sit well with so-and-so and yada, yada. You know, There's a ceiling on how much you care anymore because unless you're attacking them personally, you're still talking about a, a league full of players and coaches and executives and media members who are lucky to be doing what they're doing and you know, should probably not forget that. Yeah, that's a great point. And so your so your your junior year in at Sacramento State, that's when you find sports. At that point, from what I understand about college and all college newspapers and all that, a lot of times you're doing kind of every sport more as a generalist. Is that how it worked for you? Yeah, I mean it's like lowest man on the totem pole at that time, and they had relocated from that shanty on the outskirts of the campus to a really nice office in the middle of campus. And by the way, this is a selfish thing on the side here. It's, it's funny. Recently, I tried to get active in trying to defend my old college paper because the current president at Sac State is trying to turn back time and essentially put them back on the outskirts, which is really just disconcerting. And you know, considering what's going on in the country right now and the First Amendment getting battered and bruised through this election, and so it's been interesting to see that story. I've, I've been a little bit involved trying to keep that from happening, but back then junior year, everything was going in the right direction. So I went into the newsroom for a second time, kind of like taking a second crack at this whole journalism thing in in practice. Like I had been doing it in the classroom, but it's still studies and it's still just the education side. The beauty of the college paper was putting it just into practice and executing. So I go in the office, long story short, they end up, you know, open arms, come on in. We'd love to have some more help. And the first assignment I get that always sticks with me is they say, hey, we've got a really good women's rowing team and we'd love it if you could go cover their event. And naturally, I'm sitting there like, all right, I guess. You know, I had visions of the football game on that Saturday afternoon or whatever it might be, but I just got to just roll with the punches. So I go out to this called Lake Natoma and it's like a legitimate 25 minutes off campus. It's a beautiful setting. They had their own lake and they go to this rowing event And there's no uh, how-to guide here. There's nobody holding your hand telling you what to do. They literally just said, go out there, and the coach's name is Bill Zach, and we need a story by such and such time. And I'm on the shores of the lake trying to figure out what the heck I'm supposed to do. You're covering a sporting event that is probably 300 yards away. The actual competition, you could barely see it with a a telescope. And uh, it was a great entree into what we do because what it taught me was – for lack of a better way of putting it, and I don't know if we have a PG-13 podcast or R-rated, Danny, but like chicken soup out of chicken shit. Like that was, you know, that talent and the idea of 
all right, I wasn't front row watching these ladies kick butt and and row. So now what I have to do is I need to meet the coach and connect with him, convince him to take me into his office like he did and have him explain to me how in the heck this whole rowing thing works. So I got this debriefing from the coach who I'll never forget how gracious Bill was. And then Bill and I became kind of partners where that was my first beat was women's rowing. And, you know, I barely ever got to actually see the women do their thing. But Bill was a good storyteller. And I would kind of take his stories and try to find a way to, you know, communicate them well in the paper. And that was the first thing. And then from there, you would start eventually doing other stuff. You get to go to a men's basketball game and you get to go to the football game. And and then fast forward later the junior year, early senior year, eventually uh, I was the assistant sports editor and had a great time with a good buddy of mine, Josh Ellis, running the sports section. Josh was the sports editor and and some other people that, you know, good memories. There's a woman named Gabrielle Stevenson who went on to write for the Contra Costa Times and I think covered NASCAR and a bunch of stuff for them that she was uh, somebody who helped me along at the college paper. But to your point, yeah, I mean, we did a little bit of everything and, and had a lot of fun. I mean, those are some pretty neat memories. I like that as a as a path because it gives a very different background in terms of familiarity with it. And that is something that is still a part of the newspaper experience that is totally different from the kind of from a lot of the other avenues that are out there now to get into a sport, to get into a thing. And and you can speak to it better than I can because it's your life, not mine. But I think that really does help in terms of getting a perspective and knowing how to build a story and how to speak to an audience when you have to change up your your field and your your access so so much based on the situation. No, absolutely. I mean, and, and fast forward all the way to this past summer, and I had a really good time with a similar experience. As long as I've been doing this, going to Rio to cover the Olympics was a lot of fun. It was challenging as heck. Logistically, I was a fish out of water. I'd never done the Olympics. And I had, like, when I got this job at USA Today back in 2012, I remember thinking right away that in the media industry, and especially the way my couple of years had gone leading up to that job, a lot of change. I went from AOL Fan House to Sports Illustrated to USA Today, and it was always like, you know, at, at SI, I, I was on one-year contracts, and those th- things would come up quick. So when I got the USA Today job, I remember thinking, gee, it'd be really cool if I stayed here long enough to do the Olympics, because there's not a ton of media companies that still invest in that as a conventional thing to cover. And so the Olympics and writing about Gabby Douglas and being there in the room when Michael Phelps talks about the end of his career. That stuff was really cool. And I had a great time getting off the basketball beat for a short time and trying to remember how to tell stories and just the universal aspect of it where, you know, just uh, the sport might be different, but the humans are the same and trying to find stories that resonate with people. So, I mean, I do take a lot of pride or I guess feel lucky with my path because, you know, the, the college thing was a great time. And then I think it was like late junior year, I I cold called the Sacramento Bee and had people, I remember Gabrielle, who I mentioned earlier, kind of telling me like, you know, you know, she was super encouraging, but she was giving me a hard time. Like, it doesn't really work that way. You can't just call the Bee and and have any progress or have any luck. And and I hit them up and said, you know, I'll do whatever you guys want me to do. And I wind up being a sports clerk for them. And that was kind of the entree. There's a little more there. I don't know how much you want that story, Danny, but that was kind of the path. Yeah, that's great. And so so did you start corking for the B when you were still at in college? I did. Yeah. So my hesitation there was like it's just it's it's convoluted, but you'll probably I think you'll you'll appreciate it. So I did start at the B my junior year of college. I think it was late junior year, but the the subplot there that is I think the takeaway 
from the subplot is just the circumstance. It's like Doc Rivers always reminds us that, that luck does play a part. Doesn't matter how good the Warriors were two years ago, luck plays a part. And luck definitely played a part with me. So I'm at the college paper and I'm a bagger at Safeway. That's my college job, trying to make money on the side. When I was in high school and then early in college, that was just kind of the you know the chosen way to get a paycheck. And I'm working through school, and but I'm working too much. And I, I finally decide my grades are taking a hit. I'm working 30 hours. I'm not able to handle the load. I've got to figure out a new way to do this. So I wind up finding a job that was selling subscriptions to the B in front of grocery stores. So I go from working in the grocery store to now all of a sudden – for 16 hours a week instead of 30, I'm in front of different grocery stores all over Sacramento. I got my own plastic booth with my stack of papers, and my job is to sit there and be a traveling salesman. And as people go by, I have a free paper, and I hold it out and I say, how are you today? Uh, any chance I could talk you into a subscription? And even if you don't want one, you know, here's a free paper. And you would get a commission based on how many subscriptions you sold. So it was like, it just worked better for the college landscape. I could make more money in less time, and it was great. Well, then when I ended up calling the B trying to get a sports job, they noticed, and specifically Joe Davidson, one of my mentors who's still at the B, does great work. Joe is going through his list of young people um, who he wants to hire as a sports clerk. And if anybody doesn't really know what that job title is, you're talking part-time, come in and answer phones on Friday nights when high school football coaches call and tell you the score of the game and how many yards Johnny had in the running back position and doing stats and, and doing, you know, I mean, if they want you to run to Del Taco to get the whole copy desk dinner, that's what you're doing. So Joe's going through all of his, his uh, applicants for that job. And he always gives, you know, this is, you're talking 20 years later, almost. He gives me a hard time telling me, you know, Hey, don't forget. The only reason I hired your ass was, because you were in the system already, because I had already worked for the B, I had gone through drug testing, I was, I was in the system, and it made life easier for him. And then we get on the phone, and he liked me a little bit, and it just, it all made sense, it was all easy. And that was, I mean, that was the foot in the door. And that's the thing that's crazy, is that you look back and you do the what if thing. I mean, I don't know where things would have gone if I didn't get that foot in the door, but I mean, that's how I first got in. That's amazing. And I, I always think back to a book that resonated a lot with me when I was young was the book that Dan Patrick and Keith Olbermann wrote about SportsCenter. And a lot of the beginning of that book was about the luck that it took for them to get to where they were. And right. I think for Oberman, it was like somebody got sick or got hurt. And so he got called in. And then that was when he got his opportunity, which became his big break. And that is the nature of this business is that it's a lot of good fortune, also a lot of hard work. Like you, you really need both to get to the right place at the right time. But before we get back into the conversation, I want to take a quick moment to talk to you about Blue Apron. Blue Apron, as many of you have heard for a while on this podcast and other ones, is the fantastic food delivery service, which really can accomplish a couple different purposes. I talk a lot on this about cooking confidence, which is a really big difference. And I was thinking about it because the last thing I made was not necessarily the greatest example of cooking confidence, but was a great example of the other reasons that you can, can enjoy and really appreciate Blue Apron. So because I know about what they make and everything like that, there was a, a, a burger, a, a cheeseburger that was on there. And the wrinkle with it was a, a cheese sauce, which is something I've, I've actually, I don't think I've ever made before. But the reason I got it was because I know that as somebody who's, who enjoys eating, enjoys eating meat, though, of course, they have vegetarian options. The beef in particular that they do 
is absolutely excellent. And so I try to get burgers whenever they have it on it because I know that it's going to be really high quality ingredients and at the price point that they do, it's absolutely excellent. So went through the process of making those, making effect, well, basically sweet potato fries, and it was just a great meal. And so I had already had a lot of confidence in terms of making what it was, but to have a really good meal at a great price and to cook it at home, it was all of the the other components of Blue Apron that are so wonderful, and the ingredients are incredibly fresh. Everything was great. The the sweet potatoes, some of the, made a sauce on it that I that I've never made before. So you can go for go for Blue Apron for that reason too. I like to think of it in the cooking way, but you can eat a really good meal with incredibly fresh ingredients. And if the cooking part helps, great. If not, it's an awesome meal, and we all need more of those, especially when you can take the time to prepare it at home and make it into an experience and everything like that. So if you want to try a Blue Apron, especially if you've heard me talk about it for, for months on end, as I am a, a thrilled and happy subscriber, you can go to blueapron.com slash realgm and you get three meals for free, including free shipping on your first order. Great way to try it out and see to see how much you really enjoy it and to see if it can become a bright point in your week, just like it has for me. So again, you go to blueapron.com slash real GM. You can try it out for yourself. Now back to the conversation with Mr. Sam Amick. So, so you're a sports clerk. And then, so, so was that kind of your spot then until you graduated and then you moved into something bigger? Yeah. I mean, I kept, I, you know, I had to chip away at it. It took a while. And that's the other thing that is different. I think from that era to now is now it's like, you see really young people who are, they, they get a break, they get their foot in the door, they make a splash. And next thing you know, I mean, Danny, you, I mean, how old were you when you started coming into NBA arenas? 22. Yeah. I mean, that's when I was 22. Let me think back. Actually, I, mean, I, th- I think I was 23. But anyway, close, close enough. I sure. looked, as you remember, I looked like I was 16, which made it interesting. too. <laughs> so when I was 22, I'm happy as a clam that I'm finally getting to file stories from high school football games for the Sacramento Bee. And I'm not even doing it. I'm doing it in a part time capacity as a correspondent. And so that's what I get to do a little bit during the week, but mostly um, I would have to do things like agate, which again, this is a bygone era, but you know, that's, that's all the stats on the sports page. And it's, you know, it's a, a really unique skill set that was not easy and a lot of pressure and deadlines every night. And so that's what I was doing when I was 22. And so to your question, I had to chip away at it. I get in there and I tell people all the time who are asking for advice that the, the one of the universal things then and now that, that doesn't change at all is just the importance of relationships. So like you said, luck plays its part. I get the foot in the door, but then it becomes about what are you going to make of that access? What are you, how are you going to handle that opportunity? The relationships I made at that time would eventually play a huge part in my entire career. And I'm talking about Tom Negretti, who was the sports editor at the time and a guy who I always will appreciate. Aileen Voisin, who is still there, a columnist who when I was a sports clerk writing on the side, read some of my stuff, thought I did a nice job and started telling management that I was doing a really good job. And that was huge. I mentioned Joe earlier, Mark Kreidler, who's still got a, a radio show in the area and you know, a guy that I'll appreciate. Again, I'm going to date myself. When I had uh, that job selling the subscriptions, Danny, I'm sitting out in front of a grocery store one day reading a Mark Kreidler column in the Sacramento Bee. He was a columnist at the time and just had that light bulb go off where I, that was kind of the, the day where I was like, man, I want to do this. I don't know how this works, but I want to do this. And I walk over and this is where the dating myself comes in. I walk over to the payphone 
<laughs> and and I decide I'm going to cold call Mark Kreidler. And I called his work line. I left a message. And lo and behold, like two hours later, I'm still on my work shift. I get a page. I get, I get beeped by Mark Kreidler because I had left my pager number. And I call him back. And you know he was gracious. He was trying to be helpful. And so all these relationships end up playing a part. And, and that is the part for people that try to do it now that it's just huge. I mean, trying to be a good person, trying to work hard, trying to be about the right things. People notice that. People, you know, that resonates with folks. And I think that uh, that gets you a long ways. Making sure that people know that you care and making sure that you also care enough to not make enemies. Like there, that's one way that a lot of people try to get up in the business. And I, uh, my writing was a lot more critical and sarcastic and angry when I, when I started just like anybody else. But as a personal level, you know, just making sure that, that you're putting in the effort in that way as well is a very important part of this instead of being a firebrand because you're just losing constituencies in terms of in the business itself. No, absolutely. To that point, I remember coming across a scout for the Utah Jazz named David Friedman. And truthfully, like, you know, David and I are friendly. When I see him, I say hello. But it's not like he's a, a guy that I'm talking to routinely. And I didn't really know who the heck he was at the time. This is a couple years into covering the NBA. And I think I was still covering the Kings. This is pre-covering the, the whole league. And I come across David. I don't even know what venue it was. But what I do remember is that I said hello. And he's an older guy. He's been doing this a long time. And so he's, he's a white hair type. And he says, really nice to meet you. He says, I got, I got to tell you, I enjoy your work. And I can really tell that you, know, you, you do the work. And you really care about this. And he just it was a little moment where, and he has no clue that this stuck in my head. But it speaks to what you're talking about, that the idea that some person who I didn't know was reading my work and gleaning from it that, you know, that love it or don't love it, that this person cares and is trying and, and really trying to respect the people in the NBA in terms of their craft and what they do for a living, trying to learn. That was his message. And that meant the world to me where you're like, all right, I might not be hitting the nail on the head every time, but you know, you're trying to, to give it a shot. I actually have a similar story to that. So when I, I started out and I had, I had a blog that my friend, my college friends and I started, and you know, it, that was what I was doing in law school. It was a stress release for me. And when I started with Real GM, I actually was originally doing draft stuff. And then the first Warriors piece, which was tying in with when I started credentialing and when we met, was I, I, had, I was inspired by a piece that was on Free Darko, which is what was one of my favorite sites at the time. Yep. And so I just basically did the equivalent of the, in the time of cold calling uh, Bethlehem Shoals. And I basically just sent him an email and I said, hey, I thought this was a really cool idea. I'm sure you don't know who I am, but I would love to kind of adapt this into something. And the response I got back, I, I don't think I have it anymore. But it was it was basically like six words, and it, it's it honestly it might have set my career in motion. And it said, "I know who you are. Totally fine. Like you can use what you want." It blew my mind that somebody who I read in a site that had a big resonance for me had any awareness of what I was doing. And it was it was this affirmation, even bigger than like Real GM in some ways saying that they were interested. Was like, "Hey, like th these people are doing that," and it was incredible. Like it it, it was a, a moment that was so important for me. Well, I mean, and I love, this is part of what I love about your podcast is it's so free flowing that you can, you know, you can kind of share these stories with people. And so credit to Nathaniel Friedman, otherwise known as, as Bethlehem Scholes for kind of giving you that spark. I worked with him at Fan House and as a guy that uh, I enjoyed the heck out of and, and love his work. So that's the big thing is it sounds corny and it is cliche, but it's true. It's just the pay it forward thing where, 
you know, I'm kicking myself at different times when I'll be, you know how it is like in terms of email these days, whether it's spam, whether it's internal stuff from our company, I'll be going through my email and next thing you know, I'll see something that was a week old and it was a young person reaching out and I hadn't responded yet. And that kind of stuff, I mean, certainly you got to remember to not lose sight of people that helped you along the way. I mean, one of my stories that is in the same vein as your story about Nathaniel is that I sent a blind email of sorts to TJ Simers, who, if anybody, I mean, it's crazy how time flies. I can't believe I have to even take a moment to talk about who TJ is. But if somebody doesn't know, columnist, Orange County Register, LA Times, storied career down in Southern California, and uh, a guy who always had a great combination of of kind of mucking it up and, and not being afraid to say things that other folks were afraid to say, but a fantastic reporter and writer and a guy with a heck of a profile for a lot of years down there. Well, I reach out to TJ, same type of deal, thinking, oh, chances are I'll get nothing back. And I got like a 500-word email talking about the business and what you need to remember that still sits at the bottom of my Gmail account. I mean, I still have it sitting there. So that stuff matters a lot. You never know who you might impact. It's something that I've tried to to work at, and it is a lot easier now. The threshold is lower to get those kind of requests, but it's something that, that matters to me because I never would have gotten to where I did without that kind of help. And I think back to it every once in a while. Every once in a while, I'll tweet out like a, the thing, like one of the first pieces I ever did that got picked up by anybody was by J.E. Skeets and Ball Don't Lie, and now he's having the wonderful success with the starters. And, right. and of course, and at that point, I was already listening to the Basketball Jones, and it was my favorite podcast and was a big inspiration for doing everything that I do now. And one of my favorite things about particularly the basketball world, because it's the one that I know the best, is how broadly supportive it is of people in the industry and how I don't think of anybody else as a competitor. I don't think other people do too. And it's this way of helping everybody up and being thrilled for everyone's success. I couldn't agree more. It's a definite fraternity. And even in the few times when I've had different instances where maybe there was a a not so rosy dynamic with a particular colleague, I'll be honest, the longer I do this, the older I get. I've, I've tried to work very hard to just like, there's no, I don't have time for that. Like, you know, I, even if that, some of that stuff was my fault where I handled something a certain way and, and, and I've tried to kind of hit the rewind button and carve out, uh, you know, carve out that negativity and just embrace the fact that what you're saying is true, that it's a really neat group of people where even though you wind up competing and fighting over the same territory and trying to talk to the same players and trying to chase the same information, there manages to be a certain level of camaraderie that makes it a lot of fun. One of the elements I think that helps it so much is the idea of self-confidence. It's like that even if somebody else is in your lane, just th- it, it motivates you a little bit more to, to just do what you're doing better. And sure. there is enough space now, fortunately, with the way that media works and everything else. There's a space for a lot of us. There's not space for everyone, but there's space for a lot. And, you know, it, I, I do think of it that way. And I think that so you so you started so you went you were still covering the Kings when you went to Fanhouse or had you already become an NBA writer all the way at that point? No, I was still covering the Kings. So the Kings were um, 2004. I was the backup on the Kings. So my first road trip ever. I, I'd gone from part-time sports clerk to correspondent to then I and I'm give you the short short version. But I there was a weekly section at the B called Neighbors that that's where I I kind of you know the writing chops you know, came into play, we would write 25, 30 inch features on high school athletes every week. And it really challenged you because it was, we had a lot of space to fill 
and there's only two of us, a good friend of mine, Robert Johnson, and I doing that. I, I've always managed to have, like wind up in these boutique shops, so to speak, in terms of coverage. Like It was Joe Davidson and I trying to kick butt in the beginning, and Rob Johnson and I, and now Jeff Zilgit and I. And so the, the weekly section was my first. So you're still at the B, but we would always look at it. It was kind of like the Bs, and I'm hesitating. It's not a condescending way of saying it, but like there were times when it seemed like it was – it was kind of the the B team, no pun intended, of the B, where we had a separate office, uh, separate outfit, but it was a, you know, a community newspaper that was an insert in the B. So I worked there for a couple of years, and that was the first full time sports writing job. And then eventually that got me back onto the sports section at the B in a full time capacity. Cover high schools, did colleges, did A's and Giants for two years during the height of the Barry Bonds hitting a home run every time he stepped up to the plate era. Those were some cool memories. Long-winded way of getting to the answer to your question. So then it's the Kings, and that was 2005 to 2010. And then uh, not, exactly, the, not exactly the greatest time for the Sacramento Kings. Not at all. Like, that's what's crazy. So that year when I was the backup, my first road trip ever in the NBA was to Minnesota. And it was the Western Conference semifinals between the Kings and the T-Wolves. And this is the infamous time when KG went on that rant about how we're going to bring our Uzis, our AKs. Uh, if you haven't seen that interview, just Google Kevin Garnett and Uzis and it'll pop up. And I was in the room for that one. Some cool memories. And but it was, you know, little did I know at the time that, you know, as I was trying to rise up a little bit in the business, the Kings were certainly going to be going in the other direction. And I get on board in 2005. Only covered one playoff series the entire time I was on the beat. King Spurs, Bonzi Wells, Ron Artest, Mike Bibby, Kevin Martin. They pushed the Spurs to six games. Actually, I mean, as first round series go, it was really fun. Like, I don't know if you remember it all, Danny, but like Artest claimed that that Pop and the Spurs had like put some sort of toxic fume in the visitors' locker room. It was all a big conspiracy. And I mean, it was like Ron at his his finest in terms of just saying whatever came to mind and uh but they were a pretty decent team like that was the year where they traded for ron and they did a complete 180 had a fantastic record down the stretch and actually looked for a minute like they might upset the spurs so it was like it was all fun stuff and it was uh you, you were covering stuff that seemed to matter and then they just started taking a dive so by the time 2010 rolled around i was getting really worn out of covering the negativity and you know it's the one thing people don't i don't think realize as far as fans who have not worked in the media is do we have neat jobs of course we do but there's like this human component that doesn't change just because it's a cool sports world so if you're covering the kings for four years when they are on the decline that means that the players and the coaches and the executives that you deal with on a daily basis by and large they're not in the best of places mentally because they are not succeeding at what they do and that wore on me over time especially when you're in a one paper town and you're trying to tell good stories and tell the truth about what's going on. And a lot of times the folks that you're covering don't like the fact that you're telling the truth. So I was kind of reaching my point of exhaustion by the time that fan house opportunity came up. And, and I was writing an NBA page then as kind of an attempt to spread my wings a little bit. I was doing a once a week NBA notebook in the paper. And, uh, and then the fan house thing came about. There is a distinct challenge to writing about a team, especially for a local paper, which is a very different thing, because you have to strike this balance of being critical, but also not completely ripping it because a, a local paper sports page is 
people who have that as kind of part of their identity. You know, like right. that's that's their team, especially in a, <clears throat> at a one a town that has one professional sports team. It's a it's a different thing, and you're you ha- and when you're a newspaper, you have to get people reading, you have to get people subscribing, and everything like that. It is a real challenge, and the dynamics in the in the locker room in the media room change when a team is horrible for that long. And I, I mean, you and I both spent a fair amount of time with some Warriors teams that were terrible too, so a little bit after that. But instead of focusing on on that part of it, one of the most amazing parts about for for your story with Fanhouse is just how much resonant sports writing talent was there for your time there? I agree. I mean, I appreciate you saying that. We had a good time, man. Like the NBA side, I mean, you're talking about obviously the Matt Morris and the Tom Zillers. And and I, I always loved our structure because those guys always had something to say and their analysis was fantastic. And at that time, again, going to sound like I'm dating myself, but like it wasn't as prevalent to wax poetic about the NBA from your particular perch as it is now. Now it's certainly commonplace. Then it t- I feel like it took a little more work to become a relevant voice in the NBA if you weren't somebody who was going to games multiple times a week. You know what I mean? And eventually, like Matt in particular, you know, would start doing that. It would have a new chapter of his career and still does a great job. And And Tom has always found a way to have a voice that people pay attention to. So they had their strengths. And then in the field, it was myself and Tim Poptak, previously of the Orlando Sentinel, and then Chris Thomason, who was a lifer NBA writer, is now covering football. But it was good times. Matt Watson, another guy, you know, kind of I'm selfishly taking the chance to drop a bunch of names here, Danny, because these people did very nice things for me. But Matt Watson, based out of Detroit, guy who was a, a Pistons writer and, and had a, a blog site out there for the Pistons, just called one day. I didn't know who he was, and he just literally out of nowhere. I wasn't hunting for the job. Matt had been told by the people at AOL that he had a he had this new job with, at Fan House, and he had a budget to go out and pursue writers that he enjoyed or who he enjoyed and, and try to put something together. And so Matt was the one who built the staff along with another guy named Scott Ridge, and it didn't last nearly as long as we obviously were all hoping for, but it was a lot of fun when it did. And you guys, it was all like, was it? Did it have a feel of a community? Because you guys were all in different parts of the country. Oh yeah, yeah. No, it did. I mean, we traveled enough that, for one, I already knew Chris, and I knew Tim. I knew Chris a little bit better than Tim, but I got to know Tim, and he's a very lovable guy. He's a great spirit, and so there was already some familiarity. And we would try to. It was team. It was you know there was a teamwork aspect to it where it wasn't just three guys on an island doing their own thing. It was coordination. It was you know creatively trying to talk about what are you doing this week, what are you doing, and then Matt Watson would bring it all together. So it was a good group. We had a travel budget, which was you know that that part's always big because for one we got to get in front of each other at least at the All Star game in terms of the, the people you work with. So uh, I think it was all three of us who go to the All Star game. Quick side story that you'll appreciate, and this is a for the NBA audience. The last so how long did it last? I think it was. 18 months. So, and I don't think it matters to share this. Like, so I signed a three-year contract, but you know, the the contract wasn't really necessarily worth the paper it was printed on. It was kind of, you know, it had all kinds of outs in it and and whatnot. So I signed this deal and then I find out that, that, oh boy, we're in trouble here and they're going to pull the plug on this whole operation. So that All-Star weekend is is the end of the road. Like they're going to pay for us to go cover All-Star weekend in LA and to their credit, it, it gave us a chance to to kind of keep our name out there, even knowing the end of the road was coming. And it, it played a big part in me 
finding a way to segue to the next job. But we go to All-Star Weekend, and Chris Thomason and I, on the Thursday before All-Star Weekend, are trying to get David Stern at his uh, event that he was doing in L.A. that night. And, routine, you know, most years the commissioner might do some availability in like a casual setting on that Thursday, even though the more formal setting in media stuff is later in the weekend. So we're at the event. Chris and I are side by side, and we're trying to get David Stern. There's a bunch of people. It's almost like a kind of a red carpet type setup. And we grab him, and we're talking to Stern. Unfortunately for David, he was not aware that both Chris and I had just been told that we were getting laid off. And we're talking about the league. And at the end, Chris asked him something along the lines of, you know, what else would you like to see when it comes to just changes in the NBA going forward? And David, in his sarcastic, smarmy, sometimes way, laughs and says, well, Chris, I'd, I'd be fine with less employment for the fourth estate. <laughs> talking to two guys who just lost their jobs. So that always kind of sticks with me is like that was the end of the road. But it was fun, man. I mean, we uh, we had a good time. I think we made some noise. And, you know, people still talk about the site to this day, which I think is a, a sign. Yeah, it, it certainly is. And then going to take a quick moment to tell you about one of the other Real GM radio sponsors, one of our loved sponsors, Audible. That led to Sports Illustrated. How long were you at SI? Three, four years? No, that was shorter, too. That was about two years. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I was hopping a little bit. That was two years, in, but a but a cool chapter because it was like got on board, but the lockout was going on. So, That's right. Yeah, I mean, it's like, you know, it's like being a teacher with, no, you know, no students, so to speak. Like, uh, all right, how are we going to do this? Like, I'm trying to I'm trying to make this job work, but now the content is in short supply because we don't have games. And, and that was really challenging. And looking back. You know, I think meaningful for me, a lot of lessons learned there, too, because I had to cover the lockout without I didn't have much of a travel budget at that time. And so in terms of lockout news and my role there was pretty specific, which was they have so many talented NBA writers at SI with the Lee Jenkins and Chris Maddox at the time and Chris Ballard and the rest of those guys. Ian Thompson was still there and Ian had a lot to do with me coming to SI. But those guys had a lot on their plate across the board, and they needed another person to to come help handle some of the daily stuff in the news, and the you know almost treat it more. This is the evolution of the internet because a, a platform like SI was realizing that that is you know yes we need to continue prioritizing the magazine, telling amazing stories there, but we can't have a website that just simply doesn't acknowledge the news on a daily basis. So that was the role, and then with the lockout. It was a good. It was almost. It's funny, I never thought of it this way. A little bit of a different version than that. That women's rowing story I told you. From the standpoint of, you know, you're covering an event that's 300 yards away. I was covering the lockout from Sacramento, and I would, and I didn't have the budget to get on a plane and go sit in the street in New York and st- you know stake out lockout meetings like the Ken Burgers and Howard Becks of the world. I had to work the phones from home, and that meant that I had to get real creative in terms of getting the people involved in those negotiations to care enough about keeping you in the loop that they would help you out. But I mean, that's a lot easier to do in person than it is, you know, from the other side of the country. So tested my reporting chops quite a bit. And then that was a main focus. And then also uh, the draft was a big deal. They, They didn't really have anybody to cover everything leading up to the draft. So those were kind of the two specialties I had there. The draft is fun. I, I did it once. Was that 2012 draft, which you probably did? I'm trying to remember if yeah. I saw you out there. The Anthony Davis, yep. Vic Oladipo. No, not that was Vic. when uh, 
that was when I talked. I told this story the other day. That's when Thomas Robinson, with a straight face and with the media not laughing in response, was telling the world that he should have been the number one pick and not Anthony Davis. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Totally forgot about that. Oh yeah. Oh, oh man, I wrote it. That was a highlight. You know what? Wait, is that is that the Kyrie Irving draft? What year was no, Kyrie? No, Kyrie was a Kyrie was another year. Okay, we should somebody. This would be fun. I don't know what what platform would be best for this. Someone should go back and and write like a top ten list of stupidest draft story narratives. So Thomas Robinson should be number one pick. I think should be on that list. The other one, and I'm guilty of this because I wrote it like other people did. The other one was. Kyrie Irving is fat. Because <laughs> <laughs> he'd been hurt. He'd been hurt, and it was all oh, the body fat is a little high, and what does it mean? And and we actually, you know, if Kyrie's listening, Kyrie, apologies, you know, post-haste for making you actually answer questions about, you know, the, the chub you had going at the time. I mean, you're looking for storylines, and that was one where a few executives would say, like, oh, what does that mean? He's been hurt. He hasn't played. But you look back at it, and obviously that's pretty ridiculous. It's challenging when you have so many unknowns like Kyrie because he played so few college games. To sure. Sometimes it can be hard to find that narrative because you can't point to, oh, well, look at what he did here. Look at what he did there, especially because the way that I think it was the beginning of the year and then he got hurt and then he tried to come back and played in like one game or something like that. And just, right. just testing my old memory. But well, then he hadn't done a lot of workout wise. Forget the specifics, right. but he wasn't he wasn't willing to show teams what he could do either. Yeah. And I remember one of the things that I liked the most about covering the draft was the craziness of the day before. So the way they do it is actually similar to the All-Star game. And I, I don't know if they've changed the All-Star game. I haven't covered the last couple. But the way they used to do it was they would have half of the teams in the All-Star game. It's easy because it's the conferences in this like big ballroom. And they would all, all the players would have different tables. And then they'd have 20, 30 minutes to just talk to whoever you want to talk to. And what I found so fascinating about doing that for the draft was that it's a real challenge for these players to have to basically keep up their positivity for 30 minutes. <laughs> for sure. And some guys did a good job of it. Some guys did not. And I won't <laughs> they name, looking I at won't, their phones. I won't, right. na- I won't name names, but some of them have reputations that precede them in one way or the other. Right. And it's so interesting because part of what the draft process does is it prepares these people for the absolute insanity that is dealing with the media for the rest of their professional lives. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I always wonder myself, and this is hypocritical, just what would I be like if I was on the other side? You know, I have times where, like, here's a good example. Danny, you and I know each other well, and so I'm enjoying the heck out of just sitting here chatting with you. But when it comes to, like, you know, like I've got a, a number of different radio spots that I do on a routine basis that are scheduled, and then people will reach out. I'll have times when I, I do three or four radio hits in the course of a day, and so all told, you're maybe talking 35, 40 minutes, and like by the end of the day, I'm kind of done talking. Like, and, and so if I was a player and I had just one more media availability to do, I might be the guy you're talking about, where I'm sitting there rolling my eyes at the reporter and don't feel like dealing with this anymore. I mean, I do think. Sometimes we forget oh, yeah. about the just the fact that these are just regular dudes that, that are trying to do their jobs. And it did you not to get off on a tangent, but did you happen to see I wrote about Blake Griffin recently and, and I had somehow been sleeping on his comedy and watching his his actual stand up. Have you seen any of his stand up? I saw it the day or the day after it aired and absolutely loved it. And it was great. It was great. Well, the bit the bit that he did about the awkwardness and the strangeness of post-game interviews. You remember that part? Yes. Yeah. And like, it was so true. He's like, 
I just ran around for two hours and now you want me to sit there and with complete lucidity, remember specific plays that happened 90 minutes before I can't even breathe. And you've been judging me for these two hours. And now I'm going to look stupid because I can't put my thoughts together. So, I mean, the whole format is in a lot of ways pretty absurd, but I mean, these guys live great lives. They can deal with it, you know, but it's very strange. I can't remember who I was talking with. It might've even been on a podcast. We were, we were discussing the idea of reading news clippings about, oh, it was with Anthony Slater. We were, we were, when we did, we did a podcast together and how hard that would be, you know, like I get, Oh, sure. Yeah. You, know, you in our business, sometimes you get that on various forms of the internet, you get people talking about you and that's weird, but right. I can't imagine other people making a life, making a living, a good living in many cases, talking about what I do. Like that would be completely surreal. And I, I don't know how I would handle it. I've had, I feel like I've had both sides of that. Thankfully I've had more of the good, but like we mentioned Tom Ziller earlier. Well, the, the funny part about working with Tom at Fan House was that to that point, Tom was somebody who I didn't know personally, but who ran that Sacktown Royalty blog. And I was lucky enough to have the majority of Kings fans seemingly pretty content with my coverage. So Sacktown Royalty on a really routine basis became this place where, like you said, people would openly talk about the job I was doing. And it was weird. Now, again, a lot easier to deal with when it's positive. And for the most part, it was. But I've had the opposite side, too. Um, I mean, I've had media stories where I've had one media story where I was disappointed that I wasn't in it because I thought I could have added something. And then you're kind of looking yourself in the mirror going, good Lord, man, get over yourself. Like, what are you you sweating over this for? And and I think that part is going to just continue to grow because with the growth of media and the Internet having been around for so long now, you're seeing – the, the layers of things that get analyzed, we just keep going deeper and deeper. So I think all of us in the media need to start getting thicker skin and getting used to it. Agreed. And that is just a, a part of this business that you get used to. And I, I let it roll off a fair amount. And it, you know, it, it is what it is. And I care deeply about the opinions of those whose opinions I respect. I, I absolutely do. I think that's an important part of our business and doing it well is that you have that sort of accountability. But understanding that if it's not a substantive thing and something like that, it's it's a lot easier in the internet era, and I include media members in this, it's a lot easier to to hate publicly now than it was before. Oh, yeah. No, for sure. For sure. That part drives me nuts. I mean, social media can be the devil's playground, so to speak. Uh, it just can be exhausting. And, and, and it's true for us, too. Like, I mean, when I started, oh, yeah. when I was with Real GM, I was one of the first internet outlets credentialed for, for the Warriors, at least. There were other ones, of course, around long before that in other, in other areas. And it was a lot easier for me to be the firebrand, to be critical. I mean, I was on Mark Jackson, but this was long before even Mark Jackson and about the, like getting, getting, making it not Monte's team. But even in the, even in that world, I was a little bit less accountable just because I wasn't in the same place in terms of a a paper or something like that. And it is important to a degree. It's, it's important to not be afraid and to be able to, if you have analysis that you think is legitimate and pertinent to share it, but also understanding the ecosystem with which you work. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, that part's still evolving where I'd be lying to you if I didn't say that there were times when I had very little tolerance for writers who would come with the hardest take and who I had never seen in person. Like that's still, maybe I'm old school, I don't know. I mean, that because I think inherently it's, it's easier to do that. But you can't swing too far the other way. I mean, if the premise there is that everybody in the arena is going to be in the bag for the team they cover because they talk to these people in person, well, that doesn't serve the fan at all. 
So the balance, I think, is, you know, boots on the ground people who have the talent to put good stories together and to give their perspective and then kind of the personality to not be so uh, vulnerable to some of those influences. And the fact that, I mean, it's a real thing. I mean, I remember, I mean, we've all got stories like this, but I, I wrote one night about Peja Stojakovic and Bonzi Wells getting into it after a loss. And I, it was this uh, little bit of a skirmish, and but there was a few different versions of the story in terms of how bad it got. And it was, I was going to hold it for a day, but we were finally reaching that era where you can't hold anything. And, and, uh, it, it actually started to make its way onto local radio and they were talking about, Oh, it sounds like something happened after the game. So I go with the story and next day I go to practice and Bonzi Wells wants to rip my head off, you know, and that's the kind of, that's the, the thing you end up balancing when you cover this stuff. And to your earlier point, I mean, if you're Bonzi or you're Peja and you had a bad night at the office the night before, and you're trying to just put it behind you and then you wake up and you're reading a blow by blow in the paper and maybe you don't agree with every specific detail of how it unfolded, then, you know, you can understand some of the reaction. Certainly fair. And although so, him grabbing me by the arm was not a fair part of the reaction. That no, too, but <laughs> well, yeah. And, and I, I've seen a few other players and coaches not react properly to that. And again, I, I will choose not to name names because it didn't, fortunately it didn't happen to me, but those, those circumstances also stick with you. For- Before we move on real quick, Danny, cause this is another good topic you're bringing up. So I'm driving around and this, so I was telling the story earlier just about the, the Kings chapter and whatnot. The King's chapter, if you ask me, like, what, what, you know, what, when was the day that you were kind of unofficially done covering the Kings and trying to think about what might be next for you? It was a day when I was driving around listening to KHDK and Grant Napier, Kings broadcaster, longtime staple of Sacramento Kingsland, was on the air. And at the time, like, he, Grant and I get along great now. At the time, we didn't always get along great because he would say stuff on the air about things I wrote. And I was always convinced that he was essentially kind of passing along the message of the organization because technically he worked for the team. So it was a lot of there was a lot of edge between us at the time, at least on my end, and I don't mind sharing that. So I'm driving around, and he's talking about the, the game from the night before, and he starts saying something to the effect of, you know, I don't know what the local writer is, is writing about the game today, this sequence. And he starts reading a particular passage from my game story, and he's pointing out the fact that the sequence that I described – was just factually incorrect. I forget the details, but I got something wrong. And, I, and it was like, I was listening to this, and it's just, we, at the B, we had had, our deadlines had already been moved up, which is a, a thing that, obviously, newspapers across the country have had to deal with, and that's a ripple effect of the economics that come with the newspaper industry. It's saving money on production, moving deadlines up, makes the job harder on everybody. And you're trying to capture these games. And I had to sit there and swallow that pill that was really hard to swallow because Grant was right. Like I was listening and I wanted to get defensive, like, man, screw this guy. And instead it was like, God dang it. Like he's right. I, I, I botched it. And that's when I started looking at the internet like, oh, there's this, you know, there's this utopia where you don't have to always have deadlines and you can write longer. And, and that was one of the main attractions of looking at jobs like Fan House. Well, I remember when you and I had an early conversation, we were talking about something and I told you that I, I had no deadlines and no real substantive restrictions. And you kind of looked at me like I was some sort of <laughs> demon because it was just such a different world. And yeah. I've been fortunate now, you know, now I have deadlines in certain places, but generally it's pretty loose and, and have very understanding bosses. But 
that's the way the kind of the nature of the business is that you get into these different worlds. And but then I went back to a paper. So I don't yeah, know what I was then you doing. went back yeah. to a paper and that's actually where I was going to go. So you've been at the USA Today. And I remember when we had that conversation about you're going back to a paper. But I'm like, yeah, but you're going back to the USA Today. It's a very different thing. And what I wanted to get into there was not, I mean, obviously it's different because it's not talking about the past, but I was thinking it would be cool to describe to people just basically what your life, your, your reporting life is like at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I'll start with what we just kind of hit on. So we were talking about deadlines. I've got times when, when I, I, I still have elements of the fan house experience because it will be an online only story. I, like, I'm lucky to have, I still have a good opportunity to write stuff that I just simply feel like writing and it's not tied to a deadline and they probably won't even put it in print. I mean, our print section, it's like, again, like every paper, but it's one thing. I mean, you're trying to cover the entire sporting landscape. And so print space is in short supply. And so, you know, you kind of just know that a lot of what you do is going to be online only. And that's where obviously the business is going. But yesterday was a little bit of a turn back time moment. I'm sitting here chatting with you, drinking coffee, feeling good today. Well, 12 or 18 hours ago, I was not feeling too good. So we had decided to jump on the road with Russell Westbrook. And I just thought it'd be kind of fun, you know, in light of the fact they're playing so well. And also logistically that it's just a lot easier to connect with teams in Portland and Utah than it is in Oklahoma City. I thought, you know what? Super quick two-day trip. The Thunder are going from Portland to Utah it's a classic NBA road back-to-back where Russ is one of the few guys in this day and age where people are resting, where he's not going to rest, he's going to play. So let's write that story. Well, it sounds good in theory, but when deadlines come into play, we don't have we have a weekend paper. We don't have a Saturday paper. We don't have a Sunday paper. So it ended up becoming a thing where it's like, well, nice story and concept, but you're either going to write it for online only for Saturday, which is not a... You know, it's not as effective because if the not to get into our our company politics, but if if the company is going to pay for that road trip, they'd like to get some bang for their buck in print and online. And so, bottom line, you go to a game Tuesday night, go to a game Wednesday night, you travel in between, you wake up Thursday, and you're two hours behind East Coast in terms of the time zones, and you're going to try to write this story while also catching a plane to get home. I wrote this thing. I mean, I enjoyed writing it. It didn't turn out exactly like I was hoping, but in terms of logistics and deadlines and what the daily reporting life is like, yesterday was one of the hairier days I've had in a long time. So I'm getting on this plane. It's a 3.30 flight out of Salt Lake City. I'm still not done writing. I'm hammering away, and I'm just not done. So I get on the plane, having not filed, and I'm asking the flight attendant with like this, you know, petrified tone in my voice, like, is your Wi-Fi working? Please tell me your Wi-Fi is working. And she says, unfortunately, we're not going to know until 10,000 feet. Like it's supposed to work, but we don't know. Well, you know, and this is usually I'm not cutting anything this close, but I got on the plane knowing that if their Wi-Fi didn't work, like they're going to have to plug me in the paper and the story's not like I'm going to blow it. And uh, thankfully, that didn't happen was able to file. But I mean, that's a little taste of it. That's a rare day, though. I mean, a lot of days are a lot closer to, you know, like what today will be like, where I'm home, I've got kind of a neat office in my house. If you've ever seen one of the videos that I do from home, it's just got a, you know, I've got a bookcase behind me with a bunch of old credentials and a little wire frame basketball guy on the wall. And and I get to work the phones and, and just kind of research the league and figure out what stories to dive into. Um, you know, today 
we're trying to line up a podcast guest for we record on Mondays and then put them out like Tuesday morning. So I'm trying to see if we can't get someone locked up for Monday to have on the show. I mean, you juggle more balls than ever because video is a real point of emphasis for us right now. So it's always kind of what's the next video going to be. So you check a lot of boxes, but it's fun, man. I mean, it's a, it's a neat job. It's, it certainly is that way. Video is still something I'm getting used to. It's, it's so much, it's so much different, I guess is probably the best way to put it. Like I can think about what we're doing right now. So this is, you know, what we're focusing on is really just the conversation. I can mute myself if, if something comes up, if I need to cough, like I've done a couple of times during this. And if you're, doing, if you're doing video, everything's on there. And it's so different, like doing the Twitter show a little bit now, but then also doing other video stuff. It's it's fun, but it's certainly a challenge. No, it is for sure. It's weird. I've said this to other people. Like, I almost enjoy live TV more than I do doing the videos because the videos have to have a certain level of presentation that doesn't allow you to slip on a word or to forget a fact. Like, the closest you can get to veering off at all is I can have a piece of paper and notepad in my hand, and if there's a number... If I just have too many numbers to remember, I can look down while talking and then the people who produce our videos will see that and then subsequently put still images over that part of the video. So they can clean it up a little bit. But it's a funny deal, too, because it's I always give my ESPN buddies a hard time because they're running around with these super fancy and expensive production crews. And the stuff that we do is I mean, it's it's an iPhone and a little six inch tripod and that's and, and a little microphone that goes into the iphone jack so th- you know that's our studio and i think all in all you know, we make it work but that's just and that, it goes back to the top of the conversation like how much things have changed this is a far cry from i remember covering high school football games and the most stressful part of, of that experience was that before the game i remember one game in particular del oro high school in one of the Sacramento suburbs, you had to you had to track down the coach before the game. And keep in mind, he's trying to get his team ready. He's not wanting to worry about media. You had to cut a deal with the high school coach so that you make sure that after the game that he would unlock his office and let you in so you could use the phone line to send your story in. You know, those are the kinds of logistics and technology we're dealing with back then. And now all of us are running around as multimedia people. It's something else. Mm-hmm. I thought of this when you were bringing up stuff, but do you remember your first radio appearance? I wish I did. I don't. Man, that sucks. That's a good question. I remember mine. It was, and I had just written a draft review. I can go back and look. It was the Pacers drafted Paul George, Lance Stevenson, and Magnum Roll. And I was effusive in my praise of that. I thought the Pacers had, I think, the best or the second best draft. And so that night... My boss at Real GM emails me and says, "Hey, you got a you got an ask from an Indiana talk radio station to come on." And it because it was Indianapolis and so they're a couple time zones away. I was in law school at the time. Like I I was still I was still in law school and they I happened to have a day where I started late and they said, "Can you come on at at I think it was 9 a.m. their time, which was 7 a.m. or something like that because of their weird daylight savings time thing." And I just didn't sleep. I was so nervous (laughs) and so excited. And now, like, I I still love doing radio. It's still exciting. And the fun of doing something live is there because you know that it's not going to be perfect. But also, it is a great way of honing a lot of the bad parts out of your speech, out of your diction, out of everything else, because you know that it is a big audience for what you're doing. For sure. No, and, and I don't, 
remember the specific first one, but I definitely remember that feeling you're talking about and how for the first however long when you would start doing them routinely. And I didn't, you know, I mean, now it's, you're talking every day, there's something. And so it just becomes part of the routine. But first couple of years, I don't think I was jumping on the air that often. So I seem to remember like a pretty healthy chunk of time, like maybe the first couple of years where that anxiety was right there when you got on the air, like, okay, you know, everybody's listening, here we go. And now I'm guilty of trying to think of a recent example. But for one, the mute button is a beautiful thing because I cannot tell you how many times I'll do a hit in an airport or something and you're trying to play with the mute button because the poor people trying to listen are hearing the lady on the microphone behind you. But it's 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 different now, but it's fun. I mean, I like all the different platforms that we fill and uh, it does get exhausting sometimes. And I always joke with Jeff Zilgin, who I work with about, you know, the, the media PER rating, like that's, that's our goal is don't waste too much effort. Don't, don't waste, you know, I don't like working on stories that don't seem to resonate with anybody. That's disappointing. Um, you've got to be efficient because as much fun as these jobs are, you could always go a dozen different ways with your day every day in terms of what kind of stuff you're chasing, what stories you're going to tell and trying to be deliberate and actually think this stuff through, I think is important. That's a great point. I've also started appreciating because this, especially the Twitter show is the first time I've ever had to do this of the, the kind of beauty of doing prep and then having to throw it all out the window. And so like for the, for the Twitter thing, like we do prep based on how we think the game is going to go. So I pull up stats, you know, maybe how the Blazers are doing with, without a specific player or something like that. And then that ends up not being a relevant part of the story. And so then it becomes that, but it's, but that's part of also what makes sports so much fun is that as much as knowledgeable people feel like we can predict what's going to happen and have a good general idea. There is that uncertainty. I think back to how the NBA finals turned out, you know, the Warriors had a three, one lead. We're looking great. And yeah, there are a lot of structural reasons why what happened happened, but that helped illustrate just how much, how much fun, how unpredictable this can be. No, no question. I mean, that's even in the context of this season, I was just complaining to someone about this the other day and making fun of us and the media like man, it must. I, th- I was talking to a person from a team. It's like it must drive you guys nuts how we can only go on the information at the time. So we come up with these storylines and we try to project, we try to analyze this season. Maybe more. Maybe I'm having recency bias, but more than I can remember, I feel like every narrative is getting flipped on its head, and and every couple of weeks things change. And, and to run through a couple of them, it's like you know I focused on the Clippers early on. Like geez, Clippers twelve and two. I talked to Blake. I talked to Chris. Chris talks about how Blake having another child has changed the dynamic between the two of them. And so as people, they're more connected than ever. And Doc went out and got Raymond Felton in most baits, and they have a better bench than normal. And so the narrative is, man, Clippers are for real. Get used to it. This is who they are. And then they drop a bunch of games, and you're like, oh, crap. So that narrative flips on its head. You know, the Warriors get run by the Spurs, and and it's doom and gloom. And then next thing you know, they're dominating. So – that part, I don't know what the answer is. It's not like we're going to stop trying to project. But over time, and the longer I do it, I do find it more and more comical how like so many things that we thought were true, we thought were the case, ultimately proved to be the exact opposite. That's the fun of it to me, is that you, you go through it and you try to read the tea leaves at the time. And, and sometimes you also get the greater context, like just what's going on on a player, what's going on on a team, and you realize that you had the idea wrong or something like that. But I, I enjoy that. Uh, there are times that it gets frustrating, and I hate being wrong. 
but at least it's more enjoyable to be wrong that way than to like you were talking back to that story with with Grant Napier. Like I had one of those where I I was kind of being defiant on something, and uh, I w- it was a, a a CBA thing, and I actually got it wrong. I got it wrong. This was in like 2012, and it was yeah. with Chad Ford. Ford was completely magnanimous about it. He was he realized he was right, and I was well. He he knew he was right, and I was wrong. Right. But he didn't use it as a cudgel to beat me over with it, and I was real always really appreciative of that. And it's like those kind of things still eat at me. Like that still bothers me to this day. Sure. Like those sure, sorts sure. of things are there, but you know you, you work through it and and you make an experience and. I wanted to just considering we've talked in more broad strokes. What have you enjoyed most about this season so far? I think the fact that it's it's more compelling than it was supposed to be. I, I think this is, and I've written this a little bit, and so I'm going to use you for like professional therapy, Danny. I've I've written a couple times a line about how the, the widespread assumption that the regular season was not going to matter because the Warriors got Kevin Durant, and I've been trying to check myself a little bit on that. In this respect, like, was that a widespread assumption or, and I hate even admitting this, like, or was that just Stephen A? (laughs) Like, he came out and said that, and and that's the power of ESPN's microphone is sometimes, especially him, where love him or hate him, certain things just, they kind of permeate deeper because it was louder and it was more prevalent. And so I don't know exactly how prevalent that opinion was, but I do feel like a lot of people felt that the season wasn't going to matter. And all of a sudden, like, it really does. I mean, it's just, you look left, you look right. There's all kinds of relevant storylines. Like, we're not analyzing certain non-Warriors teams just for the sake of analyzing. We're analyzing them because the Spurs could win the championship, because maybe the Clippers are for real, because the Grizzlies are really interesting in how in the world are they doing what they're doing. There's just a lot more that matters. I mean, the Jazz, you know, I, I can't wait to write more about the Jazz. And not that they're title contenders, but... They're really good, and I felt like it's December 16th. Like I almost, you know, we always talk about Christmas Day being when the mainstream audience actually tunes into the NBA. Well, that's partly true, and it's pretty unfortunate because, like, they've missed a lot of fun stuff. I mean, there's been, you know, I've had more fun covering this stuff in the first couple of months than I thought. I thought we'd be sleepwalking through this whole thing a little bit. And a point that Nate Duncan made that has been important in this whole thing is that, by and large, the best players have stayed pretty healthy. Conley missed, yeah. some, missed some time, and actually Conley being out produced one of the best stories of the year so far. You know, that how, how that Grizzlies team has been able to re- react and perform has been something that has given me more satisfaction than basically anything this year. Because For I love, sure. Because I love seeing that. And other than that, you know, Jimmy Butler's playing great. A lot of guys are having it. And even some of the players on maybe disappointing teams, Carl Anthony Towns, Andrew Wiggins, and the T-Wolves are certainly one of those. They've had moments that were just awesome. That game Shout against out the Bulls. Shout out Tim Bontemps. Yes. <laughs> oh, he's going to love that. Uh, but, but so, yeah, I mean, Westbrook has been incandescent for long stretches. And... That's part of what what makes this interesting, and and you also have this season. I, I think I've noticed this more than most, where certain players, even outside of their team performance, like John Wall has had some great games this year. The Wizards have disappointed. That's not really his fault. There have been other things that have happened, and also the top teams, while they haven't been, they've been great. I think Cleveland, they've looked a little bit distant in the regular season, but at the same For point. Sure. I don't particularly care about them in the regular season. You know, they are what they are, and as I care about them being healthy because we already know. And so that's what's crazy is how we have different rules for different teams. Like the yes. Clippers and what they do now matter. That matters a lot. 
to a lot of people. Um, even though it doesn't, it's it's a well. I can, they tell, can't I can win. tell you my rule. My rule is if it matters to them, it matters to me. Sure, that's fair. Well, but it's like the Clippers. I, you feel bad for them because they can't win for losing. Where if they're dominant, nobody cares because they they got to do it in the playoffs. But then if they lose, they just bag on them about how you know they're terrible. Yeah, I talked to so, Dan Boyke about that, and he he said that it was it's this strange reality where they care kind of. It's good to win in the regular season, even they, even though they know it doesn't. It's not how they define themselves, just to kind of prove that they can. Right. And it's it's a very different dynamic than the Warriors. And you think back to like if they even if they had just won that Rocket series that the pressure that they feel mostly external, but a lot of internal as well, would be totally different. Even with that, though, of course, making the NBA Finals would have been even bigger. Well, that's the whole idea of narratives flipping, too. It's like, geez, Louise, I mean, I covered the heck out of that Clippers-Spurs series, and it's like, the, the you know, the, the Clippers have finally grown up. Look at them, and it was really impressive stuff. And Chris Paul hits that amazing shot on the right side, and the Spurs go down. And we thought it was the end of an era. How stupid are we? And then we thought it was the ascension of the Clippers. And then they just blow it against the Rockets. And next thing you know, the the whole thing flips. You mentioned uh, Memphis. And since we're kind of doing this whole thing about pulling the curtain back on media jobs, for anybody who just wonders about the logistics that we end up facing. So recently, I had been looking at the schedule, figuring out what road trips would be worth doing. And the Grizzlies' success was really tugging at me because I'm based where I'm based, no, it's just south of Sacramento, and it's tough to get to Memphis. And I want to get out there, and you want to give them a just do, but it's just you waste a whole day getting out there. And so long story short, I had planned a trip where I was going to prioritize the Grizzlies and try to capture what they're doing in conjunction with continuing to, to stay close on the Warriors because the Warriors were heading that way. I was ready to rock. This was what I was going to do. Mike Conley goes down, and you know, lo and behold, I'm like everybody else, like, ah, oh, geez, like these guys are done. They're just done, and I canceled the trip. And I ended up prioritizing, basically looking at it and saying, okay, if you look at Memphis and you compare relevancy to trying to do something on Westbrook, you know, you could argue one's more high profile than the other, but they're both almost equal, I think, in terms of real relevance right now. So we switch gears, we do this Westbrook thing. And in hindsight, I mean, the Westbrook thing was fine. It was great. But, you know, now I'm trying to find a way to check that Grizzlies box because we didn't see this coming at all. Yeah, that's the way this can work sometimes. It it, it certainly can surprise. And oftentimes it's positive surprises. Sometimes it's negative ones when a team just doesn't put it together like you hoped. But that's the nature of the business. We've talked about plenty. Is there anything else you feel like you want to tell that's a part of the story that would be good or... I guess any we've done this in other capacities, but any like advice for aspiring people, just like kind of quick hits of things that you think are good to consider beyond what we've already discussed. Yeah, I mean we've hit on some of it. I, I try, you know, I want to get better trying to crystallize the stuff that's that kind of spans all generations because I find myself when people ask for advice, I end up trying to navigate through all the differences of how they're trying to come up now compared to how I did that. You know, I, I get bogged down in trying to really share advice that, that really helps. But I think one thing that is indisputable that we talked about early, earlier is, is the relationships and, you know, not only the way you carry yourself and the kind of person you are, but realizing, uh, finding a good threshold between, like, I don't like people who are overly political. It, it kind of grinds on me. And I feel like you can smell it from a mile away when there's nothing sincere about why somebody's reaching out. But there's a threshold there. You also need to respect it. Everybody's trying to get ahead in life. And, you know, there's going to be a political component to everything. But the people I've enjoyed the most and who I've tried to help the most 
were like a nice balance and combination of um, self-motivated and trying to learn things for their own benefit, but also just being engaged on a level where you enjoy them as people. But the relationships are big. And so if you're coming up, just keep your eyes really, really wide open to the kinds of people who might be able to teach you a few things or help you at a certain point in time. That makes me think of our mutual friend, Logan Murdoch. Danny, you know, you're, you're tied with Logan, right? Yeah. Yeah. So Logan, like Logan was a, and to describe to people who don't know Logan, you know, a couple of years ago, he's just a young guy just hanging around NBA arenas. I didn't even know who he was writing for, but he just had a good spirit about him. And over the years, you know, we were friendly and he, and it was, he was never schmucky about how he would reach out. And he was never slimy about like, oh, I'm just going to talk to this Sam guy because he's got a little bit of a profile. Like, he was just a funny kid who we'd start busting on each other, and it was a, a neat dynamic. And then years later, you know, I'm getting emails about him with people of influence in the media industry asking me my opinion. And one of the things that resonated then and now is just, hey, great spirit, works hard, tries to learn, and is trying to find his way. But in terms of relationships, Logan was smart because he was himself, but then he was also trying to, to meet different people. So the relationships are big, and, and you hit the nail on the head earlier when you just talked about that. I mean, we sound like coaches now, but it's that combination of, of luck and effort and preparation all coming together at once. You've got to do the work. The last thing you want is to have your phone ring with somebody giving you an opportunity and then knowing in your mind that you haven't done the work to put yourself in a position to succeed for that opportunity and, and that you're not there. I mean, that's the nightmare scenario because these chances don't come you know, nearly as often as you would like. I like that I get to use a wooden quote, uh, but it, success is where preparation and opportunity meet. I mean, right, that, that right. really is, or opportunity meets preparation. It's been said a few different ways, but really that's what this is. And it requires both things in almost all likelihood, but being ready to do the work is extremely important. And you basically need to be good enough at everything, but the one that can never fail is doing the work. Actually, personality can't either, because if you're that big, especially early on, if you're that big of a pain to deal with, it's just not, people aren't going to do it. I've seen it, man. And I'm not going to call anybody out, but it's like, I've seen it. I mean, I've had, thankfully not that many instances of it, but there've been a, a you know, there've been a couple bad seeds along the way that I look back and go, man, like that, 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 uh, that ethos or that principle that you're talking about, like that sure did bear out. Like, you know, so-and-so had a real short shelf life because they were pretty big for their britches and everybody around saw it. Well, thank you so much for taking time. It's been an absolute pleasure to go through this. I hope you I hope you enjoyed it even a small amount as much as I did. I did, Danny. I did. It was fun to go down memory lane. I appreciate you doing it. And uh, congrats on your success. It's been really neat to see you grow and do your thing. And you and Nate kill it on the, the Dunkton pod and then the, the Twitter stuff that seems like it's blowing up. So that's awesome. Keep doing your thing. Well, thank you so much. Thanks again to Sam Amick for taking the time. You can read him at the USA Today, and you can also listen to the A to Z podcast he does with Jeff Zilgit, and you can follow him on Twitter at Sam Amick. That's S-A-M underscore A-M-I-C-K. Considering he has almost 160,000 followers, you probably do already, but if you don't, you should. Sam's a great reporter and a great guy, and I'm sure he's not going to love this, but I, I'm going to take a little bit of time to just talk about how, how he was significant for me because we talked about it a little bit during the podcast, but I, I, got, I took an unusual route and started writing w with a credential at age 24. I, I was in law school at the time. I was in my last year of law school. And unlike Sam, I had no background in journalism. I 
started doing it, Real GM was great enough to give me an outlet and to get me in the door, to get me in the door at Oracle Arena for Don Nelson's last year, Steph Curry's first year. And I had to rely a lot on people like Sam and Mark Spears and uh, Marcus Thompson, Rusty Simmons, and various other people to help me kind of get my bearings and to figure out how a lot of this stuff works. And Sam's fundamental kindness and helpfulness was invaluable to me. And it's something that I always remember and think back to. And it's so weird now knowing how this business works that some of the people who just happened to be there when I was starting out, you know, could have been any NBA market, happened to be national people, national people who I read, who I enjoyed, like Sam, like Mark Spears. And they were so instrumental in just being nice to me and being supportive and answering questions I had. And there were so many pieces that I just didn't know. You know, like I got I got lost in the in the arena so many times. I, I, don't, I think I lost count. It was at least 15 where I just got lost. I was trying to find my way because they know when you have a press credential that, oh, you should know where you're going. And for a long time, I didn't. And so even small things like that, but much bigger things as well in terms of advice and everything else. And I, I'm deeply appreciative of that. And I think that the humanity for Sam comes through in everything he does. He works so incredibly hard and you can hear a lot of it on this podcast. And I loved having that story because he goes through a lot of different phases in this business and, you know, goes from the paper and being a journalism major to fan house and, and what that was to going back to a paper in USA Today, but bridging that gap in terms of technology. So I really do hope that you enjoyed that. I absolutely love talking with Sam and I'm going to try to do as, especially if, if people really enjoy it, I'm going to try to do these more often than I've done it before. That doesn't mean it's going to be, you know, a, a monthly thing or anything like that. But when I have the right person and the right topic, I definitely will pursue it. So especially if, if I get some, if people enjoy it, if you don't, you can let me know that too. I really, the job here is to make sure that listeners are happy with what they're getting. So wanted to do that, but it's a story that at least to my knowledge has not been really told in its full form. So that's something I always want to do on Real Jam Radio. And if it's if it takes this this kind of medium to do it, ha- totally happy to do so. Feedback, good, bad, indifferent, you can reach out to me, NBA at gmail.com or at DanielLaRue on Twitter, D-A-N-N-Y-L-E-R-O-U-X. If you want to support the show, you absolutely can. You can leave a rating, leave a review in whatever podcast player you use. It's great if it's iTunes because that still has... It has more currency in the business at the moment, but it's in whatever you have. I'm not, I'm not going to ask you to leave an iTunes review if you listen to it in something else. And also you can subscribe and download every episode. That is particularly great for Real Jam Radio because while it is a weekly show nominally, it does not have a consistent day of the week because that's just not, not the way I, I'm lucky enough with Real Jam that they give me that flexibility. And especially in times like this when I have a little bit less time to edit, it's great to have that sort of flexibility. The other things you can do to support the show is check out our sponsors. So for this episode, it is Blue Apron. You can go to blueapron.com slash realgm, and you can get three meals for free, including free shipping on your first order. And also you can go to audible.com slash try now. I've mentioned this last few weeks. I'm getting close to being done with Trevor Noah's excellent book. That is an audiobook on Audible. I've, I've really enjoyed it. It's excellent. And they have so many other great things. If, if I had more hours in the day, a lot of them would be spent doing other productive things while listening to Audible because I legitimately enjoy it. It's a product I'm so happy to have. And also, if you're listening to this in the first couple of days after it comes out, you can also 
send me an email to the same address, the same email address, or you can use the hashtags my best NBA gift or my worst NBA gift. We're doing a cross promotion with Sherry's Berries where people are telling stories about the best gifts they've gotten, what best or worst, actually, either way. And the best stories, the best things will get gift cards from Sherry's Berries, $50. So nothing to shake a stick at and their products are amazing. So you can reach out to me over those. I'm going to try to have it close sometime in the week between Christmas and New Year's. Originally, I was going to close it before, and then I realized, well, a lot of people are going to have better stories right after. So we're going to tie that in. And, you know, it can be a holiday gift. It doesn't have to be Christmas. I'm not trying to narrow the field at all. So you can feel free to tell it, and we'll go through it. And if there's a real tough decision in terms of it, I will reach out to some of my friends who I think can be objective on this sort of a thing. So you can reach out in that way. Really do appreciate it, and, of course, appreciate Mr. Sam Amick for taking the time, and I cracked up a little bit every once in a while I think about it. I happened to be watching Dan Patrick's show when Dan Patrick yelled at Sam because Sam had never corrected him that it's Amick, not Amick. And I then went to Oracle that night and yelled at Sam because I had never known either, and at that point I'd known him for, I think, five, six years. And that's just how nice a guy he is, is that he wouldn't even correct it. Granted, we don't say each other's last names that often, but it was still just just a testament to him being a nice guy. And I think a little bit about the Akeem Olajuwon thing at some points with that, with Akeem basically saying his name had another letter in it. But thank you so much to Sam for taking the time. Sam, thanks so much to you for taking the time to listen. Going to have, already have the next episode lined up. It is not yet recorded, but going to have something cool next week, something I'm going to enjoy, hopefully doing with some regularity. And then of course, bringing back the monthly tiers column and that will be the monthly tiers, not column, but piece. That will be with Ben Golliver shortly after New Year's. We're recording a couple days after New Year's. So that will be continuing that new tradition as well. So you can look forward to those over the next couple weeks. Thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. Mm-hmm.